You may be seated, church. What a joy to be together this morning. We are starting something new today. We have finished up our post-Easter series. We've been talking about this idea of what it means to be people who are full of Jesus as he pours into us, as he pours out of us into the world. We finished that up. Now we're starting something new. We're going to spend this summer digging through a selection of psalms. So if you have your Bibles today, you can go ahead and turn over to the first psalm. Psalm 1 will be opening with this. I'm, I'm excited for this series. I, I mean, apart from the fact that just like the way we selected this is I, I sent something out to all the pastors and said, yeah, I think I'm, I think this is what we'd like to do for the summer is go through the psalms. But, you know, there's like 150 of them in like 12 weeks of summer. So, uh, you know, we can't do them all. And so what I did was I said, hey, send, send me a list of the psalms that have been most impactful in your personal faith journey to, to all the pastors. And they sent me back those lists and I dug through them and basically cross-referenced, right? Like what were the ones that got mentioned more than once? And that's what led to this series. So I'm really excited for that. Before we get into it, I am supposed to tell you guys one other thing and that's this. So we are into summer and traditionally in church world, uh, summer is usually just, you know, a little lower attendance. People are in and out. They're traveling, those sorts of things. Um, and, and we, have, we ex- have been experiencing that over the last couple of weeks. And so I want to try something. So if you've ever come to the 9 a.m. gathering, uh, you would realize that the attendance is a little disproportionate, right? Uh, it's just kind of how it goes down, and that's fine. Uh, but we have the ability to squeeze a little more chairs in here, and we know attendance is going to be a little lower this summer anyway. And so I think what we're going to do is for the summer, we're going to go to one gathering uh, to try it out. One of the things that was a big bummer for us as pastors when Emmanuel first planted was the fact that we kind of had to do two gatherings because of size restrictions, which is just a bummer when you've got a brand new church and people are getting to know each other. And like any given Sunday, like you're not going to see half the people, right? Uh, although for you guys, it's like a third of the people. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I think it'll work. We're going to try it. So starting next Sunday, you'll get an email about this this week. Starting next Sunday, we're going to try doing one gathering at 10 a.m. for the summer and see if it works. Uh, I don't know if it'll work because if there's a single Sunday where we all show up, the game's over. Uh, But but we're going to try it. I don't foresee us being able to stay here permanently Uh, But we're going to try it over the summer, see what happens. So you'll get an email with all those details, but wanted to give you guys a heads up on that because next Sunday, if you show up at 1045, you will walk in just during the sermon, which really means like you missed the good part. So, you know, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Anyway, anyway, series in the Psalms. I'm excited for this. and, And one of the reasons I'm stoked on this is that as a general rule, churches from the pulpit tend to not spend a huge amount of time in the Psalms. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. But it's interesting because if you ask the average believer, oftentimes the Psalms are some of the most personally impactful texts and books. It seems like the Psalms are scriptures that as individual believers in our pursuit of Christ, we come back to them a lot But from the pulpit, we don't engage them as much. And I think the reason for that really just has to do with what the Psalms are and kind of what we're trained for as church people. We tend, in this context, to spend much more time on things that are narratively centric or doctrinally centric, right? We jump into texts that tell stories, that 
tell us history and that teach us like specific doctrine and teaching of like how the Christian life works out. And by the way, don't hear me say the Psalms aren't chock full of good history and doctrine. They are, but it's not their primary purpose. The Psalms, the Psalter, is a book of song and poetry. And the primary purpose, if you read through the Psalms, is to really express the heart of the walk of faith. In, in the genre of poetry, you spend less time getting at like the concretes of life and much more time, if we're honest, on how they feel, how it engages human emotion in the human heart. The Psalms tap us in to the heart of God for his creation and the heart of humanity for their God. And, and there's something about that that's really beautiful, but also just like we're not super comfortable with that kind of stuff, Right? And so we just don't touch it as often. But man, it's so good. It's so good and it's so important because here's the thing, beloved. God made all of you, including your heart. He made you an emotional creature who has reason and logic and a brain and also a heart with feelings and emotions. And he loves all of you. And so when you jump into books like Psalms, it helps you see God's heart, his whole heart, for your whole person. As you dig through the Psalms, we'll find poems and songs that are just abject praise and worship and joy and happy, and we'll find ones that are angry and sorrowful and doubtful and confessional and lamenting injustice. There is a full range of the human experience represented in this book. And I think there's something about that. It's just to, to be reminded that the God we worship is big enough to handle your whole person. That the gospel of Jesus speaks into the whole of the human heart. Not just the bits and pieces that we're maybe more culturally comfortable with. You know what I mean? So I think this is going to be good for us. We're starting at the beginning in Psalm 1 today. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are house Bibles around the room. We are really passionate about God's people having access to God's word. If you don't have one, you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to snag one of those and take it home. Or even better, just talk to me and I will get you one with slightly larger print. Because I'm like 34 and I can't read that one. So <laughs> They don't tell you the typeface when you buy those things. Anyway, um, we're, we're, we're jumping into this today. Psalm 1, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really honored that I get to do Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a psalm that's really precious to me in my own story. There's been a couple key points in my life, key directional, like, fork-in-the-road moments in my own life when God used this psalm to really remind me of the gospel, remind me of his heart for me. And so I love that we get to jump into this together. Read with me. Psalm 1, starting in the first verse, says this. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. He meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up 
in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we ask this morning, as we take a few minutes to dig into this word, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. God, we are here today, and we're in this. We're here for this, Lord. And so we ask that you would do the work, Holy Spirit, that you promised you would do, that you would illuminate the text to us, that you would soften our hearts and our minds, that you would remind us of things we've forgotten, that you would teach us new truths of the gospel, that you would convict us of our sin, and that we would leave here today having heard from you, Father. We trust you to accomplish this work, so we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. The psalm is connected to my own story, and I'll get into that a little bit as we go. I've hit this psalm multiple times over the course of my life, like some of these big moments. But I'm excited for us to get into it. I think what's going to happen as we dig through this, I'm going I'm to do the kind of stuff we normally do. I'm going to pick it apart. I'm going to kind of walk through the context. We're going to look at the, Im- the specific imagery and structure the psalmist uses. But I think at the end of the day, as we put this together, it's just going to bring us back to this kind of actually universal truth in the book of Psalms, which is really this, guys. God has designed you. Your God, the creator loving God, God has designed you to flourish. This is his good design. This is his good desire for you here and now and in eternity. There's a lot in that sentence and a lot in that sentence that that might even like like stick a little bit with us because it, it pokes at some of the ways our own culture has misused the scripture and distorted the gospel. But I think this truth is important for us. See, Psalm 1, it isn't a coincidence that Psalm 1 opens the book of Psalms. Because the thing we have to understand is the Psalter, right, this, this book of, of Hebrew hymns and, and worship songs and poems, it, it, isn't, it is a hymnal, but it isn't just a hymnal, right? Like, like if you look, theologians categorize the book of Psalms as part of the wisdom literature. And what's being said by that is even though God's people wrote music and kept their music and sang their music to worship God and pass on their doctrine for generations, at some point near the end, after Israel was destroyed and scattered, God's people gathered together this particular collection of those songs and put them in this order for a reason. If you read through Psalms, it's divided up into five different books. Those books span different aspects of Israel's history. They hit on different theological themes and all those things. But, but I really think Psalm 1, called a wisdom psalm, taps into this larger aim for this whole book. See, wisdom literature is a genre in the Old Testament. It puts Psalms next to books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs. And essentially, this, this theological theme in the Old Testament of seeking after the wisdom of God, or sometimes in shorthand in the Old Testament, seeking after the blessed life, the happy life, is this idea that when you live into God's design for you, when you, when you connect to what God built you to be, in relational connection with him, right? A worshiper of him. That you actually, like, that's actually the life you were made for. That's this good, happy, blessed life. That you flourish within God's design for you. What you're made for. And Psalms points us 
to that same truth that God has a design for you. And hear this, beloved. God's design for you is good. It's good. He has good things in mind for you. He built you and designed you for that. Wired you for that. Put you together piece by piece for that. Legit, like, the Lord loves you. That's why I use this term when I refer to you, church, where I call you the beloved of Christ. Because you are beloved. I love it. I've heard it said this way. God has your picture in his wallet. He cares about you. It's why the Psalms are this book that so many of us come back to in our, in our personal faith journey. It's why, it's why they're so, they point us back to this incredibly important truth. That the God of the universe made you and loved you and, and built you for a specific purpose. And that purpose is good for you. Right? It's why this book can be so comforting. It's why it's so relatable. It's why it should be. Like one, of, one of our prayers, one of my biggest prayers for this series is that all of us as a church, that we would lean into the Psalms in our personal faith journey, our personal worship. Now, these poems can feed you. In, in, in times of joy and worship and excitement, they can put word and language to your praise, your worship. In times of doubt and anger and hurt, they can connect you to the heart of God in the midst of your suffering. These, are, these, are, these feed your prayer life, your personal life, your spiritual life. And I really want you guys to tap into them. That's why I think, by the way, you should have a Psalter if you don't have one. The Psalter is, is, is a translation of just the book of Psalms that restores the original meter and structure of it. This is one of the things we're going to talk about a lot this summer. But, you know, the Psalms are written as songs and poetry, but they're translated from ancient Hebrew to modern English. And you guys know this, but when you sing a song, when you read a poem, they're designed to be beautiful on the page. You set them on a page in a specific way that is in and of itself part of the work. They have rhythm. They have meter. They have a beat to them. They rhyme. Like there's all these pieces that draw them together. And when you translate it from Hebrew to English, you pretty much lose all of that, right? The parts that you keep are the imagery and the structure, and we'll talk about that a lot today. But a Psalter is a specific translation that seeks to be faithful to the meaning of the text while restoring some of that semblance of the poetic and musical nature by putting the Psalms into a meter that you can sing, like the tunes you know. We're actually going to do that a lot this summer, several times this summer. We're going to grab some of these Psalms, and we're just going to sing them together because there is something so powerful about joining in with brothers and sisters for thousands of years to sing the word of God back to God, amen? Anyway, I'm getting too far down my rabbit hole. <laughs> Today, we're going to look at this psalm, Psalm 1, this wisdom psalm that points us to God's good design for us. So, a couple things. The first one is this. There, there, there's a lot of imagery going on in this text. There's one overarching metaphor that kind of drives the whole poem, and then he grabs a couple similes in the middle to kind of reinforce that main metaphor. And then the, the, one of the big things we're going to look at is the structure of this poem. It's a little bit of a unique structure. So let's start with the overarching metaphor. If you look at Psalm 1 as a whole, there's this metaphor of two paths. 
that he presents to us, right? This path of righteousness and this path of wickedness. And those who live on this earth, they walk one of, two, one of these two paths. And as you see, as the poem goes through, it goes really well for one and really not so well for the other, right? That's, that's the main thrust of this text. There's a path of righteousness, a path of wickedness. God watches over and blesses the path of righteousness and the path of wickedness ends in ruin. Now, There's a couple things we have to talk about before we move past that metaphor. Otherwise, we can blow up our understanding of this whole thing. The first one is this. The author here gives us a very black and white, either-or dichotomy in this text. There are two options. He divides all of reality into two options, right? Which is pretty intense. And we have to, before we do anything else... We have to put that in the proper biblical context. And here's the reason why. If you don't, if you just step into this and read it on the surface level, you can very easily distort it into a works-based righteousness, right? Of like, I better figure out how to get on the good path, otherwise God's going to be mad at me and step on me. Or you can distort it into just as bad of a heresy of a prosperity gospel. It says, oh, look, look what, if you do the right things, say the right prayers, do the right actions, then, then God is forced to bless you and he becomes this divine vending machine that gives you all these good comforts in life, right? Both of those errors miss the plain biblical context of this text. So we're starting out, remember, we're in the Old Testament. We're pre-cross. This is, this is before that part of redemptive history, which means this psalm was written to God's covenant people who were living underneath the Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai. So go back and read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I know you were like just itching to cross those off your Bible reading list this year. But go back and read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and what you'll see is that when God's people were at Mount Sinai, God spoke through the prophet Moses and made a covenant with his people. And that covenant is really important. Because remember, the whole point of this is that God designed you to flourish an intimate relationship with him. The creator of the universe, the sustainer of our reality, loves us and cares for us and longs to live in relationship with his creation. But we are sinful and rebellious and he is holy and righteous. And those things don't mix. And when sinful, rebellious creatures interact with the perfect, holy, righteous God, they poof into flame. Like literally. At Mount Sinai, God says, hey, real quick, I'm about to set up this relationship, but don't let anyone touch the mountain or they will poof into flame. They can't come near me. And so he sets up a covenant. He he defines the relationship. He creates an environment within which his people can be in relationship with him. And that covenant is framed in the language of blessings and curses. If you jump over and read Deuteronomy 27 and 28, it really kind of ties the whole of the Mount Sinai section into a bow. What you see is that God uses this language to say, listen, when you are in covenant with me, when you're in relationship with me, it will be good for you. I'll take care of you. But when you rebel and you break covenant, my care will not be with you. Curses will be on you. You'll experience the brunt of of sin, of the curse. And so this idea of blessing and curse becomes the shorthand within the Hebrew culture for being in relationship with God and out of relationship with God. 
So fast forward to the wisdom literature where we're sitting, where the constant refrain is, blessed is he, blessed is he, this will lead you to the blessed life, this is the good life, this is the happy life. What they're saying is, this is the life connected to Yahweh. This is what life looks like in the covenant. So we have to put our text in that covenantal context, or nothing else makes sense after it. The, the writer, the, the speaker here is pointing us to this truth of saying, listen, blessed is the one who lives in relationship under the covenant with Yahweh. Let me tell you why. And then he gives these two paths. Because there are two ways to live this life. On the path of wickedness and the path of righteousness. Now here's the thing. Even once you put it in your covenantal context, right? That makes sense of it. But it's still just kind of distasteful to us as modern Western, smart, intelligent people, right? We go, really, speaker, there's, there's two options here and nothing else? All of reality divided? There's no, there's no, thir- there's no, yeah. That's the way he sets it up. We, we, we oftentimes just default to not liking either or scenarios. Feels like being backed into a corner. But the author does this for a very specific reason, and we need to sit with this. This tells us a couple things. The first one is, If he's dividing all of reality into a dichotomy, if everything that exists falls in one of the two options, it tells us something right off the bat. These two buckets got to be pretty big, right? If everything of existence fits in one side or the other, if everything of the human life fits in one side or the other, then the two categories must be massive, except they're not. See, one of the categories, the path of the righteous, He actually gets really specific about it, right? He goes, oh, this is someone who delights in the law of the Lord, who who meditates on his person, on his teaching day and night. Here's the thing, guys. That's pretty specific, right? Like, I don't think, I don't, I don't think I'd do that. (laughs) Delight in the instruction of the Lord day and night. I don't know about you guys. The majority of my nighttime schedule involves either comforting, screaming children, watching Netflix, or sleeping, right? Like those are kind of the three main categories when the sun goes down in my house. But he gives a very specific instruction here, which tells us that that bucket is actually pretty small. That one's actually really specific, which means that the other one, the other path, is that much bigger. If he's dividing all of reality into two options, and one of the options is pretty specific, then the other option must be massively broad, right? But here's the interesting thing. That shouldn't really be all that surprising. In Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. But narrow is the gate of difficult, the road that leads to life, and few find it. The speaker in Psalm 1 hands us a reality-dividing dichotomy. And it's pretty intense. And it essentially comes down to there are those who are connected to God and there are those who aren't. And Jesus himself made it pretty clear, right? There aren't that many who are connected to God. It's a narrow road. Few find it. The path of the wicked in our psalm 
is a broad highway. And many people travel on it. Our text today is simply telling us that those who walk on that narrow road, that smaller one, they're blessed. They're happy. They're, 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 they're tapping in to this thing God has designed us for. But let's, let's take this a layer deeper. And to do that, we're going to look at this poem in a way that's a little strange to probably most of us. So we're actually going to start in the center of the poem and work our way out to the edges. There's this thing that's really common in Hebrew poetry, and we're going to see this a lot in the book of the Psalms. It's called, it's called symmetrical parallelism. And good luck writing that one in your notes because I couldn't type it with spell checks help. But it's this idea that we tend to think of things and write things in a linear fashion. You start here, you move that way. But oftentimes... Very often, Hebrew writing, and especially Hebrew poetry, actually structures the things a little different, where the main point, the crux, is put dead in the center. Think like, think like the Tootsie Roll in the middle of your Tootsie Pop, right? And then there are these paralleled sections that connect back to one another that work their way out to the edges in layers. So what you have in our text is there's this point, this statement made in the dead center of the text, and then when you work your way out and you look at verse 3 and verse 4, and then verse 2 and verse 5, and then verse 1 and verse 6, you see these connected comparisons moving your way out. So the dead center of our text is this last phrase in verse 3 that says, whatever he does prospers. Whatever he does prospers. This blessed person on the path of righteousness is prospering. They are flourishing. And don't read from this, right, like prosperity gospel, they just bought a Tesla. Read from this like, this person is living as they were intended to live. And in that, they're flourishing. They're flourishing. And this is where we get into our two similes. So look at the layer immediately above and immediately below this part, verse 3 and verse 4. We're given these two similes where he takes the larger metaphor, two paths, and now he compares them to something, giving us some imagery. And so he says, he says, the path of the righteous is like a tree planted by water. And the image you're supposed to get here is of a fig tree planted next to kind of a man-made, like cultivated little like irrigation canal thing. And the reason is this. I'm not a big fig person, but according to the internet, <laughs> figs are these very hardy plants. And wild figs grow all over this region of the Middle East, even like out into some of the wastelands, some of the desert lands. And the way they function as this kind of really hard, desert hardy plant is that basically they can live through a really bad year. In a part of the world where there's not four seasons, there's rainy season and dry season, right? The fig tree can survive a pretty drought-intensive year. Their roots go deep, they can stay alive, but they will produce fruit in direct connection to how much water they take in. So if there's a dry year, the fig tree does okay, but there's not many figs on it at the end of the day. But if it's a really rainy season, they get a ton of water, it will produce as many figs as it gets water to produce. And so what happens is, when, when cultivators would cultivate these trees, they would purposely put them next to irrigation canals. We got a picture of one here growing into a river. These trees, when they find streams and rivers, just throw roots everywhere to the point that literally some fig trees can dam off creeks and streams with the massive amount of roots they throw. And then it's just like figs for days to, to the point where like 
These trees can damage themselves producing so many figs when they get tons of water. However much water they get, however many figs they make. You can see that tree, right? Like tons of fruit on that tree. So a cultivated fig tree would be put directly next to an irrigation stream and it would throw its roots in there and through the tender care of the person keeping the orchard, trimming branches, keeping things back, these things would bear the maximum possible amount of fruit they could make. And the point, the, the, the thing we get in this word picture is this. Fig trees exist to produce figs, Right? And when someone carefully, lovingly puts them in the right environment, they make a ton of figs. They do what they were made to do, and they do it well, right? This is the path of the righteous. This is that blessed path. They do what they were designed to do, and they flourish. Figs for days. Put that next to the path of the wicked, which is called like chaff. Now, I don't know if how agriculturally knowledgeable you are. I am very obviously not a farm boy. But in, in pre-mechanized days, if you harvested a, at a grain-centric harvest, something that could be made into bread, at some point, you had to harvest all those stalks with all those grain heads on them and make their way from plants to bread. And the way you do that is through this process called threshing, where you, you, you cut them down, you gather them, the stalks into bundles and let them dry, and then you take those bundles and just beat them into pieces on the ground. And once they're all beaten and broken into pieces, you take a pitchfork like this and you toss them up into the air. Because what happens is the grain heads, which are heavy, immediately fall back down into a pile. But the chaff, which is the waste, the extra plant pieces, is very light. And even in a slight breeze, it just blows away. And so in this threshing, you're throwing up and the stuff you want falls back down. The stuff that's pointless, that has no purpose, blows away in the wind and is gone. Now this is an intense contrast from the speaker of the song. The person on the path of righteousness, they're like this cultivated, tended fig tree, just producing as much as it can possibly, just doing everything it was built to do as well as it can. The person on the path of wickedness, they have no purpose. And they will blow away in the wind. Ooh, it's intense. Take it out to the next layer of our onion, and it gets more intense. Now he moves out of imagery and goes into the very specific reality of the way these kind of people live their lives and experience their lives. Look at verse 2, how the person in the path of righteousness is described. It says, it says, he delights in the Lord's instruction. He meditates on it day and night. There's a lot going on here. And by the way, like I would be remiss here if we didn't talk about one of the most fundamental truths of like the invitation of this psalm. Like this, the speaker here is, is unapologetically telling us that those who are connected to the Lord read his word, right? Like, like there's no getting around the fact that the, that the Lord's heart for you has been preserved in written form and you have an invitation here to grow in relationship with him by diving into it. These are the words of life, brothers and sisters. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. But there's also more going on here. Notice he says, he delights in the instruction of the Lord. 
The, the primary thrust of what's being described here has to do with this person's affection for Yahweh. They love him. They love him. Of course they dig into his word. Not out of this guilt trip, like I went to church and pastor told me I need to read my Bible. And I'm like, dang, I need to read my Bible. I don't want to end up in the path of the wicked. And so I go home and I force myself to get up and it's not fun, but I do it anyway. I don't know what's going on. No, 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 no. We're talking about delight. We're talking about an affection for God that says, I love my creator. I want to spend time with him. I want to know him more. I want to be connected to him. And he's, he's given me this gift. And honestly, half the time it doesn't make sense, but I just keep jumping into it because I love him and I want to know him. That's what's being described here. And look what it goes on to say. Meditates. Meditates on the instruction of the Lord day and night. Now, here's the thing there's a cultural connection we have to this idea of meditation that makes most of us just miss this text immediately. Because here's the thing. We hear, most of us, not all of us, we, most of us, we hear the term, the word meditate, and we instantly get this picture in our mind of like someone sitting cross-legged going, saying like, um, over and over, right? And we think of this, this Eastern form of meditation that really is about trying to just empty your mind out, empty your soul out, like, how can I be calm and quiet and just nothing going on? I'm an open receptacle. I'm an open vessel. Which, by the way, like calming exercises can be really good and healthy. But that's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about meditation. Biblical meditation, what we're seeing here, is not about emptying your mind. Rather, it's about filling your mind with Christ. Biblical meditation is the idea of, of taking the truth of the gospel, the truth of this word, and so intentionally filling and focusing yourself on it that it becomes a lens through which you look at the world around you. Biblical meditation is this idea of, I just, I just love Yahweh. I love my creator. So I think about him. I think about him as I go throughout my day. One of the most beautiful pictures of this, Craig actually mentioned this last week. In Deuteronomy 6, there's this blessing given to God's people, this thing called the Shema. And it's this, this way of God's people like taking some of their basic teachings of who God is and his relationship to them and just worming them into their heads and their hearts. And the way Deuteronomy 6 describes it is it says, is talk about this stuff all day long with everyone you're around. Talk about it with your family. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it at dinner. Talk about it while you walk. Write it on the walls. Write it on your clothes. Make it part of your life. That's a closer picture to biblical meditation. Meditating on the word day and night doesn't mean quitting your job so you can sit in your basement and say, um, and like play Joy FM in the background. It means falling in love with Jesus in such a way that as you walk through your day, when you get up and eat breakfast, when you go to your first meeting of the day, when you go to the gym, when you hang out with your kids, when you go to small group, when you walk around your neighborhood, when you engage your coworkers, and in all those things, there's this tint to your vision, and that tint is your affection for the Lord. That your heart's actually turned to Him throughout the day in such a way that you walk around the world seeing it through Jesus-colored glasses. That's the meditation of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. That's something that's really like, that's driven out of affection, right? Which, by the way, we know. We know that. 
Because I guarantee you've experienced some small form of that in your life. And it was probably the last time you had a crush, right? Like that might have been middle school. That might have been two weeks ago. I don't know, like you do you. But you know what I'm saying. When that person worms their way into your heart, you just kind of think about it all day long. You're sitting there like supposed to be doing your work. And you're like, I wonder, just real quick, I just wonder what their last name would look like with my last name, right? And like, (laughs) you guys know what I'm talking about. That's how affection works. It worms into your head and worms into your heart and it becomes just this kind of tint through which you look at your whole day. That's built out of affection. That's built out of love. That's built out of connection. And beloved, that's what you were made for. That kind of love, that kind of connection. Put that next to verse five. And look how the life of the person on the path of wickedness is described. They skip their entire life and go to judgment day, which says something. It says, this person will not stand on the day of judgment. And that's all that's said. <laughs> they, they, they can't hang out in the assembly of believers. It won't stand. It won't work. It's interesting that the speaker here skips over their earth, even though, even though the image for, for the, on the path of righteousness really has to kind of do with your day-to-day life here. For the person on the path of wickedness, they kind of skip forward. And I think the reason here is because he's essentially saying, look, the person on the path of wickedness, like, they can live their life here any way they want. They might have tons of money. They might be super wealthy. They might, you don't know what it's going to look like. But at the end of the day, the creator, sustainer, God of the universe is coming to judge all things and to restore perfection to his creation. And everything that is sin and everything that is evil and everything that is suffering and everything that is pain, everything that is the curse will cease. And in that day, person on the path of wickedness will not stand. He will not stand up to the judgment of God. Their chaff nature will be revealed. And they will cease. The assembly of God's people will happen and they will not be able to join it. And that's intense. That's heavy. Right? I mean, what a comparison between this picture of like joyous, loving, kind of like playful day-to-day connection and then this is where this is headed. That's heavy. It's heavy. And that brings us out to the edges of this psalm. It brings us back to the simple truth of this psalm. The person on the path of righteousness, that narrow path, they're blessed. They're blessed. What a blessing to have that kind of connection, to have that kind of life, to to get to the end of days and face the judgment and to be able to stand, to not be chaff that is blown away. What a blessing. And what is that blessing? What is, like, what is the difference there? We get it in verse six in the closing. The Lord watches over the path of the righteous. The end of the path of the wicked is destruction. It's ruin. But the path of the righteous, the Lord watches over. I love this. I love this for this reason. This poem is beautiful. And so you think about it for about 10 seconds. Because then you go, wait a minute. I don't think I'm on the good path. <laughs> right? 
And you really, as we go through this, you're like, oh, this is so beautiful. Like, look how good God is. Look at his, like, man, I'd love to live that way. Like just flourishing in my design, delighting in the Lord, connecting to the day to day. But then you think about your actual life and how you lived this last week, how you lived this morning, how you're living literally right now in the moment. And you go, hmm, I think I'm getting the bad end of this deal, right? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not terribly righteous. I don't delight in the instruction of the Lord day and night and tint my entire experience of life through him. I'm actually quite selfish. I live the majority of my life thinking about myself. That doesn't end too well for me. If that's the case, it's pretty intense. And the leaves are kind of stuck there. <laughs> Except for this closing line The Lord watches over the path of the righteous. The, right, the person on the path of the righteous, they, they don't withstand the judgment on their own merit. They don't get there and go, Check it out, God! I did awesome! He's like, Sweet, come on in. That's not how it works. They withstand the judgment because the Lord watches over their path. This is where this text brings us beautifully back to the truth of the gospel. Because the honest, sober reality is that every single one of us delights in that massive 15-lane highway of wickedness toward ruin. Right? It's easy it's comfortable. Most people walk on it. That other path is hard to get in and hard to stay on, and it just doesn't really seem like my jam. I need God's intervention in my life. If I'm going to get on that other path, I need, I need God to intervene. I need his help. I need a friend who loves me enough to move me from one to the other to take me by the hand and guide me from the kingdom of darkness to a, to a kingdom of light. I need someone to get me on that path. And then I'm going to be honest. I need someone to just completely baby me and hold my hand and guide me down that path. Because I don't like walking on the rough, narrow one and I'm going to want to jump back over. <laughs> I need someone to watch over me, to keep me, so when the day of judgment comes, they can kind of pass me through. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Beloved, such is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This text points us beautifully, perfectly to the necessity of the gospel. This is your sweet Jesus who loves you so much that he's, not, he's just not content to see you march down a highway towards your own ruin. Even though we're rebellious, even though we run away, even though we choose over and over and over to step into that place, the God of the universe saw fit to come and be Jesus here on this earth and live a perfect life and still die an unjust sinner's death, but by the power of the Spirit, be risen from the dead, defeating the power of the curse, and ascend into heaven from which one day he will return and restore all things. And beloved, when the day of judgment comes, when the day of judgment comes, those who are in Christ will be righteous. 
Not because of their own strength, not because of their own amazing Garmin track of how straight they walked on their path, but because the righteousness of Christ will cross them over that finish line. Come on, church. What a gospel. What a God who loves you that much. Because that's what this comes back to, guys. It comes back to the fact that the God of the universe, your creator, loves you that much. That he longs to be in intimate relationship with you and me. No offense, but like, what? (laughs) But it's his heart for you. You are his beloved. He loves you. So he does exactly that. He intercedes in your life. He takes you by the hand, plucks you from the kingdom of darkness, places you into his marvelous kingdom. He takes you by the hand from that highway to that path and says, this is what I actually made you for. This is where you actually flourish. And then in his grace and his love, his spirit guides you by the hand as you pull and tug, trying to get back to your own destruction. He takes you by the hand and guides you into eternity. What a God. What a gospel. Truly, when Jesus said, I am the way, a path is narrow and few find it, but man, the path, beloved, is Christ. He is the way. He makes a way for you and for me from death to life. What an amazing gospel. Chris, if you want to come up here, here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to sing this psalm together to the tune of Amazing Grace. I'm going to put it up. It's going to be, I think, cool. But I want you to do this. If you're in this space and you know in your heart of hearts that you have not submitted to and received the love and forgiveness of Christ, I would encourage you, not to be heavy-handed, but I would encourage you to consider what the psalmist says to you today. The path of the wicked leads to ruin. And listen up, God did not make you for that. God built you to flourish. And he built you to flourish in the context of connection and intimate love with him and forgiveness of sin and restoration of your soul. And that is available to you. I would encourage you today, if that's where your heart is, consider that. Consider the invitation that Christ gives to you today. If you're in this space and you know in your heart of hearts that you are in Christ, I would encourage you to sing this psalm loud and to look and consider these two paths and think about the highway that you are marching down, joyful and content in your own destruction and the grace and love of a God who would seek you out and lead you by the hand from dark to light, from death to life. What a God we serve. What a gospel. What a truth to celebrate. If that's you today, before we get ready to take communion at our time, I would encourage you to remember afresh the affection that your God has for you.